Thank you for joining me for the second episode of The Fourth Estate. I apologize for that very pregnant pause between episodes. Uh, please know that I'm working on a more consistent show schedule, and please bear with me as I try to figure out how to do that. So I think in the last episode, I spent a little time talking about how I was worried that people might learn the wrong lessons from the election of Donald Trump. And lots of people are. Who should the Democrats run in 2020? Gavin Newsom. Why? Because he could win, one. Uh, you know, he, he, Trump always says about people, he looks like he's from central casting, which is a great reason to appoint a person. Uh, but Gavin does look like he's the president. You know, people vote for a tall, good-looking guy, and he's ballsy. You know, he's been on the right end of issues here in California before they were popular. I don't see anybody in the party who would be a better candidate. More on that astute political analysis in a moment. But first, many in the Democratic Party and many of its loyalists and supporters are all in on this allegation that the Trump campaign and the Russian government worked together to steal the election from former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. I want to devote a little more time to the problems with that in future episodes, but for now, I'd just offer this. Lots of liberals want to explain away the Donald Trump presidency as a sort of farce or a fluke that, without Russian meddling, could never have been a reality, is probably rooted in the desire to believe that Trump's election was uh, an aberration, a blip that doesn't necessarily reveal something fundamental about the true, sometimes ugly nature of this country. By blaming this on something outside of our control, a lot of people are clinging to some hope that if every institution were functioning the way it was supposed to, the election of Donald Trump would have been impossible. This, of course, ignores the fact that in 2016, fewer people voted for Donald Trump than voted for Mitt Romney's failed 2012 ticket. And the fact that the Clinton campaign saw voter turnout dip from 2012 levels in nearly every key Democratic constituency. Uh, black men, black women, Hispanic voters, young voters. I would invite anyone listening to just consider that maybe... Donald Trump was an eventuality of the systems in place and the politics of this country. And I think I would warn liberals and Democrats to do the same and to seriously consider the question, are Democrats running candidates that make Trump and other candidates like him more electable? Are they running viable candidates that are offering new ideas that break with neoliberal economic orthodoxy, an orthodoxy that Trump one, by pretending to reject. A high-profile Democrat here in California, who is definitely not a paradigm-shifting candidate, is leading all of his rivals in the California gubernatorial race. More on that ahead. I'm Eric Nieto, and this is The Fourth Estate.
I'm proud of one thing, that I represent one of the most extraordinary cities in the world where we're living together and advancing together across every conceivable kind of difference. This is what it's about. For those that want to theorize about discrimination, uh, we wanted to put a practical face on it. We wanted to unite people, bring people together. We wanted to affirm marriage, and I think in San Francisco what we've been doing is affirming marriage. And I'm just one person, but I'm proud to be the one person that's standing for those principles that I think stood in this city for generations. That was then Mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, defiantly congratulating himself and the city of San Francisco for being the first in California to hand out marriage licenses to same-sex couples in 2004, years before doing so was legal. And I'm not trying to diminish the importance of this gesture. The city of San Francisco issued over 4,000 marriage licenses to same-sex couples during that time. The courts eventually nullified all of them, but four years later, states began passing marriage equality ordinances. And the Supreme Court in 2015 declared state bans on same-sex marriage unconstitutional. Newsom, the now lieutenant governor of California, is leading the polls in the upcoming California gubernatorial race. The reason I'm highlighting Gavin Newsom's career is because I think that he's emblematic of one of the larger problems that Democrats face, especially in the age of Trump. Newsom made a national name for himself in 2004 when he began issuing those marriage licenses as a national advocate for gay rights with aspirations for higher office. He branded himself as a boogeyman for conservatives. He embraced their ire and pointed to it as proof that he was a particularly progressive politician, even in deep blue California. But his policies as mayor and the proposals laid out in his 2013 book, Citizenville, really put him at odds with the progressive champion persona he's created for himself. Citations for so-called quality of life charges peaked while he was the mayor of San Francisco. People experiencing homelessness were fined because of anti-homeless policies like bans on panhandling on public transit or near ATMs. It might be good to note here that half of San Francisco's homeless youth identify as members of the LGBTQ community. And when homelessness is criminalized the way Newsom criminalized it, it's often the LGBTQ community that bears the disproportionate brunt of the penalties. Newsom also has close personal and financial ties to Silicon Valley millionaires. He advocates for less government regulation on these tech giants, as many of them work to collect and sell the personal data of their customers. An odd stance for a supposed progressive Democrat. So odd, actually, that his ideas are attracting praise from really unexpected people. The best single book on moving out of bureaucracy into a Tocquevillian society where you, the citizen, are empowered to solve your own problems. This tells you a lot about where we are in the Republican Party. The best single book is by Gavin Newsom, the former mayor of San Francisco and lieutenant governor of California. It's called Citizenville, and every single conservative in this country should read it because it is a practical textbook on all the opportunities in the information age to get rid of government and replace it with citizen activism exactly in the Tocquevillian model. But it embraces the new world and the pioneers who are creating the future. It isn't trapped in an argument over the past. That was former Republican House Speaker Newt Gingrich. 
In the last episode, I identified neoliberalism as the dominant political ideology in this country, the ideology embraced by Democrats and Republicans. And this is a pretty glaring example of how that's true. Gavin Newsom might be the first governor of California who is entirely in the pocket of the Silicon Valley tech giants at a time when those giants probe deeper and deeper into our personal information and private lives. That is potentially very dangerous. Newsom has made it very clear that he's willing to represent the tech industry and use their talking points. Listen to Stephen Colbert on The Colbert Report in 2013, trying to navigate the Silicon Valley speak Newsom uses in Citizenville. Now, uh, you're the 49th lieutenant governor of the great state of California. Yes, sir. Okay. You're also one of the following California two terms. Two terms as the mayor of San Francisco. You've got a new book here. It's called Citizenville. Yes. How to take the town square digital and reinvent government. What do you, what do you mean by take the town square digital? Do I have to log on to my government <laughs> now? Because I don't want to memorize a new password. <laughs> the whole idea is this. Right now we have a broadcast model of governing that you vote what? and I decide. It's just, You understand this intimately. You've seen the contours of this change with the media. You've seen it certainly in the music industry. Big is getting small and small is getting big. Technology has the ability to level the playing field. What the does any of that mean? It's Big is getting big and little is small. What it's are you talking about? Hold on. What is there a glossary? Right is there a silicone valor? Is there there. a bull <laughs> translator? Right, exactly. Yeah. What are you the talking about? This? It's about. <laughs> It's about the nature of the world we're living in. Hierarchy is being challenged. This idea. See, I don't like of... that. Hierarchy is there for a reason, my friend. Yes, I know. I am a member of it. Yes, okay? you are. And the why, elite. why, why wouldn't you want to be for it? You're, you're, you're almost. You're <laughs> lieutenant governor. You're almost at the yeah, top of the heap for your state. I don't like it. I, I want to democratize voices. I want real citizen engagement. I want two-way conversations. I want citizenship to be redefined. I don't want people to do things to me. I want to do people to do things with me. So it's all about building partnership and building capacity, building community. That's what, what citizens about. What do you mean? Capacity Again, to do great things. Every single one of these things could do... be carved on a stone and put in someone's garden as, as, like, <laughs> as like a mantra, but I don't know what they mean. What do what you mean? I mean by that? What, what? Capacity. I'm talking about community. Bandwidth, talking you mean. About, you yes. mean governmental bandwidth no. so that all of us can, can <laughs> hyperlink our engagement to democracy. <laughs> See, I can make this up to no, what are you stop making it up no, what are you talking about it's about What's that? You have a whole generation of folks that are growing up as, you'll hate this, digital natives. Folks that understand a different language than the rest. You and I are digital immigrants. We're learning the language digital of technology. What do you mean? We're learning the, we're learning the language of technology. And it's not just the creepy, almost indecipherable Silicon Valley jargon. The tech industry is, after all, just another multi-billion dollar industry with growing influence over the political system. Their CEO's financial and political goals, despite the talk of digital community and the democratization of discourse, are the same as many other billionaires. To privatize public infrastructure, uh, to accumulate mass amounts of wealth, and the establishment of a legislative and political framework that protects that wealth from any kind of democratic referendum or pushback. It's the tech wing of the neoliberal project. Remember Peter Thiel? He's the co-founder of PayPal, 
the guy who got the news site, Gawker, shut down by suing them into oblivion. This is him speaking at the Republican National Convention in 2016. Good evening. I'm Peter Thiel. I build companies and I support people who are building new things, from social networks to rocket ships. I'm not a politician, but neither is Donald Trump. He is a builder, and it's time to rebuild America. Where I, where I work in Silicon Valley, it's hard to see where America has gone wrong. It's hard to remember this, but our government once was once high-tech too. When I moved to Cleveland, defense research was laying the foundations for the internet. The Apollo program was just about to put a man on the moon, and it was Neil Armstrong from right here in Ohio. The future felt limitless, but today our government is broken. Our nuclear bases still use floppy disks. Our newest fighter jets can't even fly in the rain. And it would be kind to say the government software works poorly because much of the time it doesn't even work at all. That is a, that is a staggering decline for the country that completed the Manhattan Project. We don't accept such incompetence in Silicon Valley, and we must not accept it from our government. Of course, every American has a unique identity. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. But most of all, I am proud to be an American. I don't, I don't pretend to agree with every plank in our party's platform, but fake culture wars only distract us from our economic decline. And nobody in this race is being honest about it except Donald Trump. While it is fitting to talk about who we are, today it's even more important to remember where we came from. For me, that is Cleveland and the bright future it promised. When Donald Trump asks us to make America great again, he's not suggesting a return to the past. He's running to lead us back to that bright future. Tonight, I urge all of my fellow Americans to stand up and vote for Donald Trump. There's a lot to unpack there. But I want to respond to a few points Thiel made in that speech. President Trump, in his year in office, has actually dragged the national political dialogue into the past on issues of trans exclusion, in, particularly in the military. Donald Trump's dishonesty has sort of become a trademark of his presidency, so I guess it isn't really that shocking that he ended up being a bit of a culture warrior anyway. And second... Heralding the incineration and radiation poisoning of hundreds and thousands of Japanese people as some sort of inspirational technological triumph is gross and weird. But anyway, before his enthusiastic endorsement of Donald Trump, Peter Thiel's company, Palantir, worked closely with the Obama administration to surveil the phone calls and text messages of millions of Americans without a warrant. And now, post-Obama surveillance program and post 2016 speech at the RNC, 
Peter Thiel is one of Gavin Newsom's top donors in the California gubernatorial race. Neoliberalism is an ideology supported by both parties, and that's why it's not particularly surprising to find Newt Gingrich, Gavin Newsom, Barack Obama, and Peter Thiel on the same side of a political issue or campaign, even when those strange alliances offend our partisan sensibilities. Neoliberalism directs the economic positions of most politicians in both parties. And politicians like Gavin Newsom, who passionately advocate for the rights of marginalized communities, simultaneously pursue policies that end up targeting and harming those very same people. That contradiction is part of the reason Democrats lose, why liberal pundits breathlessly speculate as to why the Democratic base turns out in smaller numbers for Democratic candidates, and why Donald Trump is the president. Democrats use their advocacy and the outright, often dangerous bigotry of Republican politicians to pass themselves off as the only humane alternative. This is the political reality right now. I'll discuss this, Peter Thiel, and something called homonationalism with artist and author Dan Bustillo after this. Joining me now is Dan Bustillo, co-founder of the Best Friends Learning Gang, student in the Visual Studies program at UCI. Their works include Extraordinary But Not Quite Magic, Wired, Banding, Cannibalism and Drag, and a compilation of notes on surveillance, anonymity, and deception tactics. Dan, thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, you were definitely my top choice for interviewee for this episode specifically for two reasons. One, I wanted to talk a little about Gavin Newsom, his relationship to Silicon Valley, and Peter Thiel and well, homonationalism. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you to tell me what that is. But I wanted to start with Gavin Newsom, who has kind of built up these progressive bona fides, right? Essentially just by offering marriages licenses to same-sex couples in 2004, when it was still illegal, and kind of becoming Fox News enemy number one, kind of using that conservative ire to sell himself as this progressive champion when his actual record as mayor of San Francisco is really not that progressive. It actually ends up being very hostile to the homeless population in San Francisco. A half of homeless youth in San Francisco identify as LGBTQ. So he essentially wraps himself in the rainbow flag and pursues policies that hurt the community he's pretending to advocate for while he's kind of, I even hate to call it this, but sort of cleaning up the city in this way that's super detrimental to the LGBTQ community, but very appealing to Silicon Valley types. 
I guess, first, what is homo nationalism? And second, mm-hmm. how do we contextualize it in pursuit of the neoliberal project in the United States, especially in hubs like San Francisco and in Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll try to kind of like answer your question on what homo nationalism is, and then we can go to kind of like all of the different types of like, you know, recuperation projects that are operative under neoliberalism or that neoliberalism kind of facilitates and how that plays into homo nationalist agendas. But I mean, homo nationalism, as far as I know, is a term and a kind of like a tool of analysis that was brought forth by or coined by Jasper Poir. And as far as I know, Jasper Poir has used, like, kind of came up with homo nationalism and meant for it to be sort of like a, a really kind of profound, like, critique or way of thinking critically about, like, liberal rights discourses as they kind of, like, apply to the LGBTQ plus community. And it, like, literally kind of like homo nationalism was meant to kind of fuse homo, like, homo normativity which is a, a, a term coined by Lisa Duggan, which Duggan characterizes as kind of like the, um, quote, theorization of the increased recourse to domestication and privatization of neoliberal economies in queer communities. And those are uh, Duggan's words. So Poir kind of took that notion of homonormativity per Duggan and fused it with nationalism and, and came up with homo nationalism. And some of the ways that is that like, you know, uh, Jasper Poir talks about homo nationalism in like numerous articles and talks, but also in her book, um, which is homo nationalism, a terrorist assemblage is homo nationalism in queer times. She looks at kind of like, you know, this not just as like a, 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 an analytic framework, but also how it's been operative in policy. And so she kind of like looks at, for instance, how homo nationalism in the U.S. has kind of like come into place, for instance, when like the ban on the don't ask, don't tell policy, like was basically repealed exactly on the same day that Congress, you know, defeated the Dream Act. So like it places different rights in competition with each other, basically. Or another example she gives, for instance, is when in the fall of 2009, when the uh, Shepard James Byrd hate crime legislation passed, it also included a clause that allowed for the militarization or for particular forms of militarization, which essentially would target, would be used by the police to target communities of color and within that queers of color and immigrants of color. So once again, like the seemingly like a win for like the queer community actually doesn't apply to all queers equally. And so this is how kind of like, you know, via kind of like the discourse of like rights, certain, you know, marginalized communities then get roped into homo nationalism that ultimately serves white uplift, you know, and this is my paraphrasing. That serves um, white what? I'm sorry? Oh, white uplift. So like, for instance, if within, you know, like how she kind of like brings us into nationalism is that it ties into kind of like, you know, the, the U.S. security state in the sense that it's like these same protections will ultimately be granted or be used for or will serve white queers and particularly white cis queers before they serve queers of color or, you know, queer immigrants, for instance, or immigrants of color. And that's really interesting. Yeah, it does. And it's really interesting to me in the context of San Francisco specifically, where queer people of color are disproportionately uh, make up a disproportionate amount of the homeless population. So Gavin Newsom's kind of, for instance, crackdown on panhandling near ATMs or on public transit. I mean, who would that ultimately affect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And and like, and part of what this logic then kind of like 
does is that it kind of like enlists basically certain folks who have been kind of like, you know, advanced to candidacy or something within the kind of like, you know, a white homonormative project and that they then serve to kind of like uphold that same, you know, a nationalist project at the expense of um, folks who are within their own communities or, or on the peripheries of their communities, which would be like, you know, a, a larger queer community, for instance. But yeah, I mean, some of the things also like, yeah, what's interesting to it, like, I feel like on the one hand, like a lot of kind of homo nationalist projects or things that can be thought through with, with the lens or the analytic framework of homo nationalism, things get really complicated really fast as as like, you know, the same kind of like person might kind of like be an advocate or claim to be an advocate for like, you know, certain rights or like takes on that role at the expense of another group of folks' rights and how quickly this can happen within like, you know, advocacy, for instance, for like, you know, same-sex marriage, but then that comes at like the cost of like, you know, low-income communities of color and, and homeless communities, for instance. Or even the uh, kind of labeling of those communities as as just inherently intolerant. I remember during the Proposition 8 fight in California, where a no vote meant yes for gay marriage and a yes vote meant, you know, no gay marriage. The yeah. no on eight campaign outright really just refused to go to communities of color, uh, specifically um, black and Latino communities, you know, just kind of assuming, well, they're Catholic or they are evangelical. It's not even worth it. Right. Instead of taking this separate but equal argument to them, just kind of writing them off as just essentially black, brown, and bigoted mm-hmm. and not worth talking to. So they instead pursued this celebrity strategy where they could get every celebrity they could on television talking about why Proposition 8 was so horrible. And then once Proposition 8 passed, you know, they really just were kind of left with this just dismay. How could this have happened? But as we found out later, they just completely wrote off communities of color altogether. I've talked to you about this before, and we've definitely talked about that as far as kind of the black or brown body or the way gay rights is used to kind of talk about Muslim communities in the United States and outside of the United States, how they are inherently, I guess, bigoted toward Mm -hmm. LGBTQ plus people. And yeah, how does that fit into this? Yeah, I mean, well, I think what you're bringing up is like the ways in which the stereotype of like, you know, white U.S. citizens being inherently more tolerant towards queer rights as opposed to communities of color, immigrant communities and, you know, racialized Muslim communities where the assumption that is kind of like essentially manipulated and crafted is that these are communities that are less tolerant. And and so like what that then translates to is that like, you know, white communities can be queer, whereas communities of color have to be straight or are more straight. And if they're straight, then they are considered to be homophobic and less tolerant, which is, you know, kind of like speaks to some of the issues that that you're kind of pointing out and that are like deeply tra- uh, you know problematic and also really traumatic for, you know, queers who come out of these communities, you know, like where it takes like a long minute to understand, to kind of like parse basically queerness as like not being something that is only available to white U.S. citizens, but that queerness is operative everywhere and that there isn't such a thing in reality as one community being more tolerant than the other or one community being more homophobic than than the other that like it doesn't it doesn't get divided along racial lines but that that is essentially you know something that is kind of like manufactured and maintained within the white ironically straight you know imaginary 
you were kind of like addressing earlier the, the kind of like, you know, changing or, or like the strategic positioning of, of kind of like, you know, championing certain rights. I'm also thinking of like Kamala Harris and, you know, Trump's trans military ban, for instance, and how within folks moving to kind of like call out the trans military ban. Camilla Harris, for instance, was like among those folks who was like, you know, called it kind of like a, a violation of rights. And then it's something that like is that has we have to kind of like fight. But then this is the same person who like, on the one hand, is kind of like trying to champion trans rights within the military context, but then within the penal industrial context, also work to deny reassignment opportunities for trans inmates. That's right. A lot so of like, people don't realize how terrible her record is, especially toward incarcerated people and kind of the expansion of the carceral state, you know, kind of expanding it to parents of truant children, for instance. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's kind of amazing how quickly things can get kind of like, you know, concealed within like the kind of shifting landscape of LGBTQ plus and minority rights. And so like there is no such thing basically as like a single kind of like, you know, positionality that encompasses all those things because the same person can kind of like champion one thing and then not champion the other. And of course, like things get are easier or like more consumable perhaps for people to champion as so long as they, you know, serve a larger systemic and problematic and also like deeply xenophobic and racist and Islamophobic agenda and, and ultimately homophobic, you know, even in the case of going back to kind of, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, who as somebody who like we can think of as like a perfect example of like a of homo nationalism, but also as kind of like revealing the, the deep irony of like how homophobic the state is, even in its championing of certain or strategic using of certain, you know, gay rights. So like how Milo, you know, Chant was like a very kind of like vocal champion for the LGBTQ community for Trump. And even like, what was it? I don't know if you remember, but like what event he was at where he was like, you know, speaking for Trump basically and was like in front of all these like portraits of like young twinks. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember the name of the event, but I remember the mostly naked young hairless men with Make America Great Again. Yeah. And then like shortly after, then he kind of like has a very particular position, which really is not like that kind of like estranged within queer discourse, nor within kind of like queer literature, for that matter, on intergenerational like, you know, relationships, and then gets kind of like stamped and banned as uh, uh, um, as someone who engages in like active and problematic pederasty or, or you know, um, intergenerational relationships yeah, um, he was so kind of, straight up painted as a even by liberals as a as a apologist for pedophilia mm-hmm. yeah which is kind of like the age-old trick of like all queers are, are, are pedophiles you know yeah, exactly it's so, really really so even he wasn't exempt as like as someone who's not like liberal and more like you know even he wasn't exempt from that well milo was i guess well he had a career a little less normative than the next person i'm about to bring up because you know speaking of pro-trump queers I want to go now to Peter Thiel, who was the co-founder of PayPal back in the day and has since expanded his horizons to essentially helping the state spy on us secretly. Peter Thiel spoke at the Republican National Convention. He, oh God, he talked about um, how, you know, our government's failing because we no longer take on big projects like the Manhattan Project. And, that, you know, he laments, you know, our, our, our newest fighter jets can't even fly in the rain. And then he goes straight from that to, you know, I am proud of my identity. I am proud to be a gay man and I am proud to be a Republican and I am proud to support Donald Trump. It's this really like 
steady line through all of these things that's mm-hmm. um that really like I, I you know at this point i think he's even he's not as obvious of a candidate for poster boy of homo nationalism but he's kind of even more perfect than milo mm-hmm. yeah i mean i was gonna ask like do you think that he would be more perfect than milo only like perhaps mainly because of his deep investment essentially in business like those are his politics well the reason i think of him as a more perfect candidate for it is because if if the homo nationalist position is to kind of advance the interests of the state specifically you know in 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 a, in a state with such like overstated neoliberal interests he really is the perfect candidate you know i mean our political landscape right now is essentially you know the millionaires and corporations that democrats like versus the millionaires and corporations that republicans like well they you know all those millionaires and corporations sort of hedge their bets on both sides and i think that peter thiel's a really clear example of this specifically i mean he worked really closely with the obama administration with his company palantir to expand surveillance on you know warrantless surveillance on american citizens secretly Mm -hmm. and then he went and spoke at the rnc for donald trump Mm -hmm. yeah it's amazing how the market for you know security and surveillance technologies has always been like an ever kind of growing like an endless field so like on the one hand i'm not surprised that any person who's like working within kind of like large like networked kind of platforms or or technologies whether it's for you know like a payment or or you know to order things or for communication is linked in many ways to kind of like either exploiting the same kind of like security like failures of security within that same platform or has another investment or a potential investment in in the larger kind of security and surveillance you know landscape as a way of making money you know yeah of course um, I'm also thinking, like, didn't Peter Thiel teach a class at Stanford on, like, the limits of, of globalization and technology? Like, I hadn't heard this. I Yeah, I read that he taught a class or is going to teach a class on, like, in the German department at Stanford. And it's on, like, the relationship between the state and, and the market um, in relation to kind of, like, you know, globalization and, and, and technology. No, I yeah. hadn't heard that. <laughs> I, no, I, you know, I... I I have seen him debate David Graeber, which I think everyone should watch. It's uh, oh my god, yeah, David Graeber is the uh, um, oh, gosh, what is he like an anarchist anthropologist and expert in economics? Yeah, yeah I think a, that's a great yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting conversation between the two of them. But um, to bring it back just a little bit, you know, after the Pulse nightclub massacre, right? Mm-hmm. These calls for increased surveillance on Muslim communities specifically. So all of a sudden there was this, you know, new need for more surveillance and Silicon Valley was ready to step right into that with all these new solutions, right? Facial recognition technology. I think Amazon and Microsoft are in a lot of hot water over this right now. It's interesting to me because, and I don't think I mentioned this, but at least not in this interview, but Peter Thiel is one of Gavin Newsom's top donors. Gavin Newsom, of course, is trying to be governor of California right now. He's probably going to get it. But yeah, it's so strange to see Gavin Newsom, Peter Thiel, a Trump supporter, and like Bill Maher on the same side of something, right? Bill Maher is also one of Gavin Newsom's top political contributors. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that I'm kind of like, you know, hearing in some of the things that you're saying are like how, I mean, in many ways, these are kind of like larger problems of visibility, you know, like on the one hand, like any attempt to make like a certain 
even kind of like population visible, even if it's through kind of like advocacy and like, you know, rights and demands simultaneously makes that same population or group of people like uh, vulnerable to violence, but then also extra surveillance or extra monitoring. And these are kind of like built in, you know, quote unquote opportunities for somebody who's actively seeking to exploit them for economic gain, such as like anybody who's got a vested interest like Peter Thiel. So, you know, in, in thinking about kind of like the heightened targeted surveillance of specific communities after 9-11, but then, you know, after like any incident related to 9-11, whether it's through rhetoric or any connection that like can be made, which is often a racialized connection to begin with, will disproportionately target Muslim communities, communities who are presumed to be Muslim, communities of color, immigrant communities of color more than than other communities. And, you know, I'm thinking about both the performance of allegiance that certain companies make to certain communities. So like, oh, when companies try to make a political statement, like we won't give up your information, like it's private, it's secure with us, which of course we know is not true. But then I also think of how quickly state and corporations will work together to exploit in like seemingly kind of like incredible ways as in literally hard to believe. For instance, I'm thinking of like Canada and basically like how the government has been forcing people who are suspected of, of being undocumented to do like DNA ancestry tests. And then based on the results, they'll kind of like try to guess basically where somebody might be from and just deport them back to where they think the person is from. Canada's doing this? Yeah, based on uh, DNA results. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense with, you know, who Justin Trudeau has kind of revealed himself to be <laughs> ultimately uh, as he's, you know, making a big show about welcoming refugees. He's quietly doing this. Yeah, exactly. And to your point about kind of the uh, unbelievable stances that some of these corporations are willing to make at this point, did you see that the VP of Amazon Web Services said, quote, we are committed to our customer and we are unwaveringly committed to the U.S. government and the governments we work with around the world. That says it all. (laughs) (laughs) Just came out and said it. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. That, that was I mean, in response to criticism about helping the police force in the United States, the state and the police force, you know, without, you know, even really being asked to help. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. That certainly says it all. Like what's interesting, you mentioned Pulse also, and I, I just wanted to kind of like go back to Pulse shootings. And I, a lot of people have kind of like looked back at what happened at Pulse and, and spoken about it within homo-nationalist like frameworks. And part of that is because we saw like with, with Pulse, we saw how quickly, you know, folks were to kind of like jump to defend the LGBT community or to like promise to protect the LGBTQ community. I think Donald um, Trump did, didn't he? Totally. That which was like so unbelievable. Trump not only spoke up, like promised to protect the, the queer community, but then also even like afterward, uh, I think he says, oh, here's a, here's a quote. He said, only weeks ago in Orlando, Florida, 49 wonderful Americans were savagely murdered by an Islamic terrorist. This time, the terrorist targeted the LGBT community. No good. And we're going to stop it. As your president, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBT citizens from their violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. 
which of course, you know, looking back to that now, like we can see how there was never any intention to protect the LGBT community on the one hand. And on the other hand, this idea of like cleaving basically, you know, of rendering a like the LGBT community secular and of assuming that it is not possible that the LGBT community would be kind of like incompatible with any other like community of faith is also problematic because that's kind of like the the logic that some of what he's saying is steeped in. It's also the Bill um, Maher position, which is very weird, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this kind of like idea that folks kind of like painstakingly maintain, which is that, you know, communities of color and immigrant communities of color tend to be straight and slash homophobic versus, you know, white U.S. communities that, that are presumed to be more tolerant to, to queerness. But yeah, all that to say that like with the Pulse shootings, we saw a perfect example of how quickly folks were to kind of like jump to protect or to vow, you know, to prove kind of like dedication to the queer community when in fact they had no allegiance. And with time, it have certainly shown us that they have no allegiance to the, the queer community in any way, shape or form. I mean, why even mention the Pulse shootings at all or why issue a public apology if there's actually no care for those same communities? Especially right. when the majority of the folks, you know, involved, a lot of the victims were brown queers and, and a lot of like queer Latinx folks, which we've seen, of course, Trump has done absolutely nothing to support nothing next communities with his like commitment to deportations and separations of families, et cetera. Yeah, of course. Dan Bustillo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I would encourage everyone listening to go find everything Dan's written. It is all worth reading. And Dan, I want to have you back soon to talk more about Silicon Valley encroachment, surveillance, privacy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for joining me for the second episode of The Fourth Estate. Again, I apologize for that gap between episodes. I'm working really hard to get on a fairly consistent show schedule, so please bear with me. Thanks for listening, and I have two favors to ask. Please rate this podcast on whatever app you use to get it, and please share it with anyone you think would want to hear it. I hope you'll keep listening. Thank you to Dan Bustillo for joining me. Christopher Cole is the producer for The Fourth Estate. A big thank you to him. I sincerely thank you for joining us. I'm Eric Nieto. This is The Fourth Estate. <laughs>